So my name is Pastor Trevor, one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and it's an honor to be with you this morning to open up the scriptures and to learn something new today. So my hope and prayer would be that all of us would have open hearts, open minds to hear from God something new this morning. So first, I just want to give a shout out for the video team uh, who have gone all over the state to uh, take these great videos and be able to present them on a Sunday morning. It's an awesome team of people, and it's been a pleasure to go and spend time with them. We have some good ones coming, but Sassafras Mountain was definitely one of the coolest places we've ever been. If you've not been there before, you got to go. It's super, super, super cool. And here's why. I love mountains. So if you're gonna take a road trip, would you rather go to the mountains, would you rather go to the beach, or would you rather like go to the city, okay? So if you're watching online, let us know in the comments, beach, mountain, or city, who would choose the beach? You okay? Okay, it's a bit overwhelming. Beach is uh, a, a liked place here in the room. How about mountains, people? Yes, let me hear you. And the city. I see all three of you. So, um, <laughs> there's pros and cons to every place, though, right? If you're going to go to the mountains, it'll be pros and cons. Go to the beach, pros and cons. Go to the city, pros and cons. But there's a reason that I love the mountains. And if I'm going on a road trip, we're going to the mountains. Now, if Jenna Miller is leading the road trip, we're going to the beach. But if we're going to the mountains, there's reasons why. Three of them to be specific, probably more. First, no sand. Can I get an amen? amen. There's just something about it. It's horrible. Uh, no sunburn. Amen. That wasn't so convincing. Um, the third reason is when I go on a road trip to the mountains, there's this point in time, if you've ever gone up 26, like you're going to the North Carolina mountains, there's a point along the way where all of a sudden, you're not there yet, but you can see off in the distance the mountains. And it's exciting. You can see like the summits and the valleys, just kind of a hazy thing at first, but as you get closer and closer and closer, the mountains are calling and you must go. There's something about it gets my heart pumping. I'm excited to go experience something even though we haven't arrived yet. So if I'm going on a road trip, I'm going to the mountains. If you wanna come, you can come with me. Here's what's so exciting about a road trip. I mean, the best thing about making a road trip, the greatest thing is the expectation of something new. If you're going on a road trip, the expectation of something new, like new places to eat. Is there anybody else that goes on road trips just so you can eat someplace besides Lexington? Be honest. Yeah, I love going to find new places, new dives. When I go to a town, I'm like, where, where can I eat that I can't get where I live? You know, that's what I want. Uh, new people you might meet along the way, new experiences, things to do, things to see that are all brand new to you. Maybe you've not been there in a very, very long time, or maybe you've never been there. What makes a road trip really great is the expectation of something new, rediscovering or discovering for the first time. That's what I've really loved about this sermon series, actually. Uh, kind of traversing Genesis to Revelation, finding places we've not visited in a long time or perhaps a place you've never even gone before in Scripture ever before. Last week, Chad Myers, if you were here in the room, did an amazing job kicking us off in Genesis chapter one, two, and three, really showing us once again that God has created his creation with expectation to steward creation, not to steal it, to take it somewhere, to take care of it, and not to use it for our own advantage. Chad did an awesome job kicking us off in this very first place. I learned something new. I hope you did as well. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna take kind of a bit of an overlook as we speed forward a little bit from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to where we're gonna end up today. Now, in my family, my father-in-law had this thing he used to say that if we were gonna be traveling somewhere on a road trip, whether it was a kid in the car or perhaps one of the adults, we might say something like, listen, I need to get something to eat real quick before we get going, or I need to get something to drink, I need to go to the bathroom, and typically it happens before you ever leave Lexington, right? Your kids are like, I gotta stop. We're like, we're not stopping right now. We're not even out of the city limits yet. Okay, he used to say, we gotta get some asphalt behind us. 
We gotta go someplace before we're ever gonna stop. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna get some asphalt behind us a little bit. We're gonna traverse through Genesis chapter uh, four through 11. I wanna show you something really, really interesting. So after the introduction, we're gonna go fast. So I want you to kind of stick with me for a second. After the introduction of sin into chapter three, at the very end of Chad's message, sin begins to run rampant throughout the creation that God had made. Genesis one and two, perfect creation, perfect relationship. Genesis three, sin enters the world and it spirals into a deconstructive um, hole. Shalom and peace is broken by sin that had entered the world. What God intended for creation now has been overrun by evil. So from chapter four to chapter 11, we see the ultimate results of sin. We see from a 30,000 foot view what's taking place within the world. We have the first murder with Cain and Abel. We see a massive destroying flood. We see a humanity build a tower out of pride to the heavens. We see where sin takes us. But then in chapter 12 of Genesis, we zoom in from 30,000 feet like to a family, specifically to a man named Abraham. Everyone say Abraham. Now God speaks to Abraham and God gives Abraham a promise. And this promise is that one day he will become a great nation and that God was going to bless him, but there was expectation with it. God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and bless your family, but the expectation is that I would bless you so that you would be a blessing to the world. You see, God intends to do something through Abraham's family that would somehow restore the brokenness that is in the world. So chapter 12 of Genesis, you have Abraham who has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a son named Joseph. Now Joseph, we're told in the scriptures heartbreakingly that he is sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in a place called Egypt, which at that point in time was the most powerful nation in the entire world. Joseph, through all kinds of things and, and things that happen within the scriptures, you can check them out yourself if you want to, because of famine and drought, his family ends up coming to Egypt as well to survive. Now, as God would have it, Joseph has risen to power, so he forgives his family for what they've done to him, and the Israelite people, God's people, find safe haven in Egypt. And everything's good. Things are going well. Until all of a sudden, a new pharaoh comes to power that doesn't have the history with Joseph and his people any longer. And the Israelite people enter into 400 years of slavery within Egypt. So we fast forward a lot here. We've covered a lot of terrain on this road trip through the whole book of Genesis. We've ended up now as the people of God are in slavery in Egypt. The book of Genesis begins in a garden where God creates everything perfect. There's great relationship between creation, between God, between one another. And by the end of the book, sin has run rampant and God's chosen people, specifically through Abraham, have now found themselves enslaved in Egypt. A lot has changed. We've moved a lot of ground. And the destructive nature of sin is on full display. Selfishness, pride, greed, hate, disobedience, it leads to enslavement and bondage every single time. And this is where God's people find themselves. And so it's here that we come to our next stop along this road trip that we're going through. We're gonna take a trip to the mountains so as we go to the mountains, God reveals himself to a man named Moses. Now Moses has grown up in Egypt. Now he's not Egyptian, he's actually a Hebrew, but he's grown up in Egypt. There's a whole story there you should read on your own if you want to. He escapes Egypt. He ends up working for his father-in-law named Jethro. Now that's a solid name right there, Jethro. So he is tending sheep out in the mountains when all of a sudden he comes across a burning bush and God begins to speak to him. He's on a mountain and this mountain is called Mount Sinai. 
Also in the scriptures, it's known as Mount Horeb. How about that, people? There's the connection. Literally means the mountain of God. So Moses is there tending sheep. He hears out of this burning bush God's voice. Here's what it says in Exodus chapter six, verses two through verse five. It says, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelite people, 400 years in slavery, don't forget, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my what? Covenant. I've remembered my covenant. If you notice in the beginning of this passage, God begins by speaking to Moses, going all the way back into Hebrew history. Listen, you gotta understand, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Before you ever were, I was there with these Israelite people. I am Yahweh. God begins by reminding Moses of his covenantal relationship with the Israelite people. God says, listen, to truly understand, I believe, this six-week road trip that we're on, we have to understand a word that shows up in this conversation between God and Moses. It's the word covenant, covenant. It's a high point throughout the scriptures. It shows up often, as we're gonna be visiting for the next four weeks still, it's covenantal language. Now, the word covenant comes from the Hebrew word barit, and it literally means an agreement enacted between two parties in which both parties agree to perform or refrain certain actions. It's a covenant. God says, here's what I'm going to do, and here's what you're gonna do in return. We're gonna have covenant with one another, relationship with one another. Now, if you're a parent in the room, you make covenants all the time. In the Miller household, here's how it goes. Uh, my children may say to me, Father, we would like to play Switch or Xbox. I'll say, wonderful children, I would love for you to play Switch and Xbox, which I have paid for you to enjoy. But first, you need to go brush your teeth, eat your breakfast, make your bed, then you can play said Switch and Xbox. So we've made a covenant, okay? I'm gonna allow you to enjoy the thing that is there to enjoy, and you are going to take care of some normal tasks that shouldn't be very hard to do, okay? You stay true to your end, I'll stay true to mine. We will have covenant with one another. So we do. And guess what? I will see my children enjoying the Xbox or Switch in the living room, to which I, as the father, may just go and say, let's just check on their side of the covenant. Guess what? I'm the only one who stayed true to the covenant. I said you could play, and maybe two of the three at best has happened. Can I get an amen from any parents in the room who knows what this feels like? Amen. Yes, children take note. Covenant, it's relationship. It's two different parties agreeing to two different things. And if we do these things and stay in relationship with one another, we will covenant with one another. It's a major theme throughout the scriptures over and over and over again. As God is speaking to Moses, there's a few things that are very, very clear. God tells Moses, I hear and I understand the suffering and the impression of my people. I'm not gonna turn a blind eye to it. But the second thing that is very clear is that God has remembered his side of the covenant agreement with his people that began in Genesis chapter one, if you remember last week, that is carried on through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and is still true, but God is the only one who stayed true to his side of the covenant. The other side has forgotten over and over and over again. Here's the first thing I want us to look at as we look at this overlook along the trip. God is faithful even when we're not. God is faithful even if we are not. 
can we all just admit this morning that we fail to live up to the expectations that God has for us? All of us. We have all failed to be obedient. We have failed to live honest lives. We've failed to care for those in need. We have failed to resist temptation. We've failed in all kinds of ways. God wants relationship, covenant with us, and he stayed true to his side, but we failed on our end. But here's the good news revealed all the way back to the second book in the Old Testament. And the good news is this, and God says it in verse five. He says, I have remembered my what? Covenant. I've stayed true to my end. So God tells Moses, go and tell the people, I've not forgotten about them. It's true for us today as well. He's not forgotten about you. No matter who you are, where you are, no matter where you've come from, God has not forgotten about you. He's still holding up his end of the bargain to provide for you, to pursue you, because God is faithful even when we are not. Here's what the faithfulness of God looks like as he speaks to Moses. He says, I hear the cries of the oppression and those who are enslaved as my people in Egypt. There's gonna be a rescue plan. God says to Moses, here's the good news. You're the man. You'll be the catalyst for freeing the Israelite people. You will be the leader, the one I have chosen. And so Moses reluctantly goes. Now, if you've read this story before, Moses goes through all kinds of ups and downs as he goes back into Egypt to free God's people. And we read 13 verses later as Moses leads the people out of Egypt, oppression in Egypt, across the Red Sea. Moses, once again, with the people of God, end up at the same mountain where the burning bush, where the burning bush was, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And God and Moses are having a conversation once again. Here's what God says to Moses now in Exodus 19, three through eight. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, as Chad taught us last week, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. So this covenant relationship once again offered to the Israelite people. God tells Moses, remind them, I'm the one that's rescued them. I'm the one who's brought them out of Egypt. I've carried them out on eagles' wings. I have rescued them. So God says, here's what you do in return. You obey me. You live in my way, with my will. And if you do, you'll be my treasured possession among all the nations. The whole earth is mine, but you will be a treasured possession, a beacon of hope to a world that is lost. This is the covenant that's offered between God and Moses and God's people. Now, scholars tell us, we're gonna get really nerdy for a second. You ready to go? Here we go. Scholars tell us that what's taking place here is something called a suzerain-vassal covenant. Now, in the ancient Near East at this time, there was two different essential covenants that would take place. The first one was between two equal parties, but another one was the suzerain vassal covenant, which would take place between a greater entity and a lesser entity. It might play out something like this. The lesser entity is under attack by some kind of enemy. The greater entity comes in and rescues the lesser entity from this enemy, beats them back and rescues them. 
that greater entity would turn to the lesser and now say, listen, you are my treasured possession. I've rescued you. I've brought you safety. And so now we're gonna live in relationship with one another. I, as the greater, will do these certain things and you, as the lesser, you will do things in return as well. So for instance, the greater might say, I'll provide for you protection, provision, and peace. The lesser nation would say, we will obey, we will give you sacrifice and tribute. In fact, when these things would take place, a nation was only allowed one suzerain because taking another lord or another authority would be, tre- would be treason. You can only have one. And so God reminds Moses and the people, I'm the one who's rescued you out of Egypt. I'm the one who brought you out on eagle's wings. I defeated your enemies. You are now my treasured possession. I will protect you, provide for you, bring you peace. And if you remain obedient to me, if you, you will serve the world as priests, as mediators between God and people, this is the agreement. And so on this trip to the mountain, we also see God meet his people and Moses in a very specific kind of way. It shows up just a few verses later. Here's what it says in Exodus chapter 19, verse nine. The Lord then said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and they will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Then verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. So after Moses and God spoke about this covenant that God was offering once again because he is faithful even though we are not, he meets with Moses once again as the people are there and he descends upon this mountain with a massive cloud that shrouds the summit. It's a tangible and physical representation of God's presence right there. Now it's interesting because this particular passage, this meeting between God and Moses, actually becomes a major part of Jewish culture and their understanding of covenant and promise. If you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, you would have seen something play out before you just like this picture I'm about to show you. When a Jewish man and a Jewish woman decided to commit to each other in a sacred bond of marriage, they would get married under something called a chuppah. Everyone say chuppah. My rabbi, David Olshine, is here this morning. I don't know if I did it correctly. How was it? Super good? Okay, good. Chupa is a Hebrew word meaning canopy or covering. And you would see a picture just like this. If you notice this couple who are kissing, sorry, children, in this picture, there is a covering above them, this fabric that was covering them just like the cloud that descended upon the mountain as God met with Moses and with God's people, creating covenant, promise, Vows to one another. See, the Jewish people, when they think about what God meant to God's people, it was much like a wedding. They were promising two things to one another. And so David Olshine actually presided over my wedding. I'll never forget 12 years ago when Jen and I got married, we stood before him. We made vows and commitments to one another. We said, here's what I'm gonna do on my end. Here's what you're gonna do on your end. There's a couple things that come along with a marriage. The first one is this, an agreement on both sides. It's covenant relationship. I will live out these vows until the day that I die and you will live out the vows as well. We'll be faithful to each other. But when I put a ring on my finger and I put a ring on Jenna's finger, what I was saying also is this is exclusive. When I said yes to Jenna Miller, I said to no to every other woman in the world. I'm yours and you are mine and it's exclusive. It's covenantal relationship that God invites his people into And it was something that was displayed in physical form as God came down on the mountain and met with Moses to talk about his relationship with God's people. Marriage is meant to be a reminder to the world of the faithfulness of God. 
even when we're unfaithful. So resulting out of chapter 19 becomes chapter 20 in Exodus, which we're probably very, very familiar with because God then gives Moses something called the what? Ten Commandments. Now, maybe some of you in the room, you have this memorized from the time you were a small child, but we have suzerain vassal covenant. We have a cloud on a mountain, and then Moses is given the Ten Commandments of God to help the people live in a way that God wants them to live. Because God wants to ensure that the people of God would never find themselves oppressed and enslaved in Egypt ever again. But not only that, that they themselves would never oppress and enslave someone else. God wants them to live in relationship with him in relationship with one another in a way that honors him and honors people. So he gives them the Ten Commandments. Rules, boundaries, expectations, vows, promises. Essentially, God is coming and giving them a way to live and moving forward. There are 10 of them. The first four are this. You shall have no other God before me. You, will sh- you shall have no idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You will keep the Sabbath holy. The last six. Honor your father and mother. Children, do not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet or want what is not yours. Essentially, the Ten Commandments are broken up into two ways, a vertical relationship and a horizontal relationship. The first four are focused on our relationship with God, how to live in right relationship with him, to restore what God had originally created in Genesis chapter one and chapter two, perfect relationship. Here's how you do it. You live in these kinds of ways because God understands we have a tendency to worship other things other than him. The last six are horizontal relationships the way we relate to people around us. Because God's not just concerned with how we relate to him, but how we relate to people around us as well. So he gives instruction. Because he understands we have a tendency to want what's not ours. We have a tendency to take what's not ours. We have a tendency to harm other people, and in so doing, we actually harm God as well. It's covenant. It's vows. It it sounds like a treaty. It sounds like a marriage. This is what God is offering the people of God. You stay true to your end, I will always stay true to mine. Theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul said it this way when he talks about the Ten Commandments. He used a few different words, but essentially, this is the kind of thing that he was trying to say. It has a threefold purpose, the law of God. The first purpose, the law of God is a window, it is a mirror, and it is a map. The law of God is a window, a mirror, and a map. You see, the law of God is a window because in your home, probably, you have a window somewhere within your house. It's a way for you to see outside because it's really hard to see through walls. So you can look through a window and see what's going on on the outside. It reveals what otherwise cannot be seen. See, the law of God is a window for us because it shows us, it reveals to us the kinds of things that God really cares about. It reveals to us the things that break God's heart. Because in revealing this to us, we too might find ourselves caring about the same things that God cares about. We might have our hearts broken over the same things that break the heart of God. So the law of God, the ways of God, the will of God is meant to be a window for us to see the way God wants us to live that might bring us back to the original intention that he had for us in the very beginning. So the law of God is a window. Secondly, the law of God is a mirror. You probably have a mirror just like this maybe in your house. And when I think about myself, I have certain kinds of thoughts. I see myself in a certain kind of way and hardly ever does that include gray hair. Because I'm thinking about myself, I'm like, oh, I feel 25, still pretty spry. 
You know, I, I feel like I look a certain way. I look 25, I don't. And all of a sudden, if I have a mirror and I look into a mirror, I begin to reveal to myself the truth. And the truth is, gray hair is certainly a part of the picture. And not just on my head, but on my beard as well. And that's reality. See, one of the things the law of God does is it's a mirror for us. It shows us who we actually are. Because here's the thing. We are so good at trying to prove ourselves the way we want to see ourselves. We are so good at tricking ourselves and tricking others, but you cannot trick the perfect law of God. It's a mirror that we can look into and see the truth about who we are. That truthfully, we harm people around us. That truthfully, we don't really worship God. We worship everything else. It reveals things to us that we otherwise would not see. This is why we say often that when you read the Bible more than you read it, the Bible reads you. It reveals things to you about who you are and where God is wanting to work. Maybe not gray hair, but there might be something else that God wants to do. I'm praying for gray hair to reverse, but it's not happening so far. So God's law, it's a window, it's a mirror, and it's also a map. So before there was ever like GPS or MapQuest, my family would go on trips when I was a young child. I was the GPS. Sitting, anybody, other GPS young children in the room? I would sit in the back seat of the car with the map open, you know, like the 12 foot by 12 foot map of whatever city we were in. Good luck folding it back up, right? Trying to decide where we were, we were trying to go. And I'm talking to my dad. I'm like, I think it's like three more roads. And then we get there. I'm like, actually, it's like two more roads. Sorry. Actually, it was like three roads back. We, we need to turn around because I think we missed it. My horrible GPS. But it's also really difficult to navigate by a map. You know, it's much easier having your phone tell you where to go. But the law of God is not just a window to see what God cares about, what it breaks his heart, that we might care and break our heart as well. It's not just a mirror to show us who we actually truly are. It's also a map to show us how to live. You see, when God enters into covenant relationship with us, he doesn't say, okay, now we're in a relationship, good luck. He, he gives us a way to live, a law to follow. And when we do, it's a map for our lives and how we should treat people, how we should relate to him. And he's given it to us that we might do it and do it well, that we might honor him and honor those around us. See, it's kind of hard because when it comes to a map, ultimately the outcome of the road trip was in my hands. And the law of God has been something that God has given to us to give us clear instruction, to equip us to live this life and to live it well. So the law of God was given that we might see God more clearly. It was given that we might see ourselves more clearly. And it was given that we might know how to live in this world. But here's the thing, and I wanna end right here. The law, however, is limited. It can only do so much. It is not a magic bullet. It cannot ensure obedience, and it does not ensure a godly life. That's not what the law does. And here's why. Because unless love comes before the law, the law doesn't work. Unless love comes before the law, the law doesn't work. See, look at the order of what takes place within the book of Exodus. God goes and rescues out of love his people out of Egypt before the law ever shows up. God demonstrates his love, his covenant faithfulness before he ever introduces the law back in for the people. Love has to come first or else the law does not work. I'll give you another example. Let's talk marriage again. Ideally, the way a marriage works is there are two individuals who fall in love with one another. Ideally, right? They fall, that's right. They fall in love with each other, and because they fall in love with one another, they decide we want to spend the rest of our lives together. 
And because we wanna spend the rest of our lives together, we recognize that there are vows and promises that we must make to each other that we intend to keep for the rest of our lives until death do us part, right? It's covenant. It's covenantal relationship. And the reason this is so important is because it reveals to us the way that we should live with one another. It's not the reverse order. We don't have vows and promises to ensure that we have love. We have love that causes us to say we will make promises and vows to one another. If you're a parent in the room, it plays out in your house too. I know this, my children will never, ever, ever listen to any rule, expectation I have in my home unless they love me. I can try as hard as I want, speak to them, blue in the face, but unless my children love me and the relationship that we have, that we have built with one another, there's no hope for rules and expectations being followed. You know why? Because unless love precedes law, law never works. So here's the question. I believe it's very important for us this morning. Perhaps in this room this morning, maybe, maybe you, you became a Christian a very, very long time ago. You've been a follower of Jesus, but somewhere along the way, you've kind of lost the plot. You've kind of found yourself far off from any kind of relationship with God. You feel like you've not stayed true to your end of the covenant, even though God has remained faithful. Here's the good news. He's offering it to you again, to live in relationship with him once again, because he's never forgotten it. He's always been true to you. Or maybe this morning you've never entered into a relationship with God. Guess what? It's offered to you too. His relationship is offered to you as well. Do you really, really love God? Do you really love him? Because when we love him, we want to live his way. We don't take the Ten Commandments and all of a sudden it brings about love. That love begins first and it causes us to want to obey and live in line with his will and his way. Do you really love God? Jesus has a New Testament spin on this covenantal relationship. We're gonna talk more about it in the coming weeks as we continue our road trip. But today, I think it's important to say, Jesus has a different spin, a bit of a different picture that he paints for us in the Gospels when it comes to covenantal relationship. It's not just about the Ten Commandments. He says it this way. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man or woman remains in me, then I'll remain in them. They will bear much fruit, but apart from me, they can do what? Nothing. It's covenantal language. Jesus says, I'm, I'm the vine. I'm where all nourishment, all life comes from. And if you stay connected to me, you will really live. But if you don't stay connected to me, you will accomplish nothing. Stay in covenant. Stay in relationship. Agree to your end of the bargain and live it out. And God says, I will always do my side as well. So here's the invitation this morning. As we take this trip to the mountain, I think we find that no matter how far we are from God, God is always faithful to us. We are always invited back in. And the good news is this, it's because he loves us. He longs for us to live in obedience to him because we love him as well. And if we do, he says, you'll be my treasured possession. You'll be a beacon of hope to the world. It's a need of hope if you live in relationship to me. I wanna read one final prayer that our founder, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, prayed. I think it's because he understood that we as Methodists and certainly we as people would have a hard time staying in covenant with God. We'd find all kinds of reasons to go our own way and do our own thing. 
And so he had this prayer of renewal that I think is so powerful that I wanna pray over us this morning, all of us in the room today. So if you would bow with me, I wanna pray this over us this morning. Let's pray together. Wesley prayed, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put to me what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside by you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed Father, God, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. And everyone said, amen. This morning, as we sing this closing song, I believe there's a a step we have to take to be in true covenant with God. It's a decision that must take place in our hearts, but sometimes it takes a physical act as well. So this morning, if you want to, as we sing this closing song, I want you to know these prayer benches up front here at the stage, they are open for you to come and spend time with God this morning. Please do. Unashamed, boldly, I'd invite you to come and just kneel before here, before God. Say, God, I wanna live in relationship with you. No matter where I've been or what I've done, I wanna commit once again and thank you for being faithful to me. So we're gonna worship still this morning. Please feel free to come forward and pray. Let's do business with God today.